Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning. Happy Thursday. Welcome to The Bill Press Show. I am not Bill Press. I am your guest host, Kylie Joy Gray. I am the executive editor at ShareBlue Media. Today we have a great show planned for you. We have some awesome guests coming up. We've got Henry Munoz, the founder of Latino Victory and Latino Finance Chairman of the DNC. We have the Judicial Affairs Editor at Daily Coast, my blogging home where I started this whole thing, Rebecca Buck-Walter-Poza. And then we have Senior Director of Communications for Planned Parenthood, Erica Sacken, a former boss of mine uh, who I went through the trenches of 2016 with. So we have a great show planned. Can't wait to tell you everything happening in the news today. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Good morning, Kylie. Thank you so much for being here. Howdy. Uh, do you have a fear of flying? Uh, you know, I used to. Did you really? I did. Okay, all right. Well, then uh, you, you might not want to listen to this next story. Okay. Uh, because fly, fly, Flight 5763 was heading from Seattle, Washington to Santa Ana, California, and they had some, not just turbulence, but like some very, very, very bad turbulence, severe turbulence at 34,000 feet. Uh, the plane took a couple of nosedives. <gasps> and my fear is back. Feet. Yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> if anybody has a fear of flying, I apologize. This is, it was, it was really bad actually, because uh, one of the things that happened is you know the drink carts that they push up and down the aisles uh, during the, uh, the flight went flying through uh, the cabin. And in fact, one guy who was on the airplane took some video and posted on Twitter. There's like beverages on the ceiling of the of the plane. So the beverage cart like went flying up, hit the ceiling of the cabin. Five people um, were injured and they had to actually detour and make an emergency landing because people got really hurt. People got really hurt. Everybody, it looks like they're going to be okay. Oh, uh, but... 
How horrifying is that? Um, that sounds terrible, and that's why we need high-speed rail so that nobody ever has to fly anywhere. This is a great, uh, I, I didn't think we were going to go here, but that's actually a good point. This is a great endorsement of the Green New Deal. If they had taken <laughs> high-speed rail, this wouldn't have been an issue. No nose dives on a train. No, no, not, not at all. Uh, you know, it's rare that we do obituaries on the show, but we have to do an obituary this morning because Mars Rover Opportunity is dead. Is dead. Rest in peace, Mars Rover Opportunity. Yes, indeed. 14 years on Mars is how long it survived up there. Uh, but yesterday, NASA announced that its mission is complete and the rover's life is officially over. It was on the Martian surface for 5,515 Earth days, just over 15 years. Uh, they had tried to establish sort of a, a last-minute contact, a last-ditch effort to establish contact with the rover up there, but wasn't working. There was a dust storm that cut off communications with the opportunity um, in June of last year. So the problem is, of course, the solar panels couldn't store power, uh, and they have not been able to revive it. So, farewell opportunity, safe home, you served us well. We'll see you on the other side. Next up, Newt Gingrich's moon bases, yeah, I That's guess. right, <laughs> that's right. And you know, every now and then, uh, there are some stories that really just bring a smile to my face, because it was last year that a sporting goods store in Colorado said, we are not going to sell Nike products anymore, because... Nike doubled down and they announced that Colin Kaepernick would be their new face of their ad campaign. So this guy that runs this sports store in Colorado, Primetime Sports, said we are boycotting Nike. We are not going to uh, be uh, selling their products. That was in September of last year. Yesterday they announced they are closing the store because no one is buying anything from it. Right. Did, didn't he say, I guess I, I realized... Copernic had more fans than I than I thought. Yeah, it looks like <laughs> it. Yeah, I love it. Declaring bankruptcy to own the libs uh, is now not a great way to run a business. He sure showed us. Yeah, right? This is the Bill Press Show. Good morning. Welcome to the Bill Press Show. I am your guest host today, Kylie Joy Gray. I am the executive editor at ShareBlue Media. You can find me at shareblue.com. You can find me on Twitter, Kylie Joy. Uh, and you can find me here today talking to you all about the news that is happening in this world in the Trump era today, Thursday, February 14th. Uh, so we have a great show planned. There is so much to talk about, so much news going on. Um, Manafort's going to go to jail for the rest of his life and about 10 lives after that. Um, we may or may not be averting a shutdown uh, by tomorrow night. Um, but let's, let's start out with today. It's Valentine's Day, if you're into that sort of thing. It's also the first anniversary of the shooting at uh, Parkland in Florida last year, where 17 people were killed, another 17 were injured. It was one of the most horrific things that I think we have all watched as a nation. Um, I know that the kids in Parkland are taking the day off to be quiet and uh, away from the public and to just reflect on what they've been through. And um, the thing that is really remarkable to me 
about it is how much has changed in a year. And, you know, <laughs> last week, Congress had the first hearing on gun violence in eight years because we, we just haven't been talking about it. Um, that's almost 2,000 mass shootings that have happened since the last time Congress had a hearing. You know, I, I we, we played some of that audio last week uh, w- when they had that hearing, and I, I saw that that number, and I th- and I thought, that can't be right. Uh, it is right. It, it's right. Spoiler alert, it is absolutely correct. But what a m- just mind-numbing thing to think about. Yeah, I mean, for, for eight years, uh, Congress, under the control of Republicans, has just not not cared not not even wanted to talk about hey maybe there is something that we could do let's at least talk about it and look into it so that thousands and thousands of people don't get shot to death across this country every year and now that democrats are in control and democrats are not beholden to the nra they're like hey can can we have a conversation about that now you know, we were talking about this uh, b- before the show about how uh, I, I I I didn't really believe that it was one year since Parkland. Uh, when you look at what's happened since Parkland, it right. feels like it's been five or ten years. I mean, it's been like so much has happened, and the conversation has changed so dramatically. And you know, I come from a period of time where I had just graduated high school when Columbine happened. And that was uh, like a really, really, really big moment. And the kids today that are in high school have lived through 10 or 15 different Columbines. That's right. And and by the way, that's just school shootings. I'm not talking about like, you know, the Pulse nightclub and, and things like that. So, you know, that was a shock to our system, Columbine, when it happened. And I don't want to say that kids are... Uh, have gotten numb to it. In fact, it's the exact opposite. They have said, something's got to change. We're going to do something. We're not going to allow this to happen right. every couple of days in this country. Right. And, you know, and, and that's really the remarkable thing that we've seen in the last year is that, uh, you know, the, the these kids, these teenagers were old enough to be able to speak uh, very articulately about their experience and their fears and their rage um, and young enough to um, not be rehearsed in what they would say, to not uh, be beholden to any organizations or any talking points. So, you know, when they organized the um, March for Our Lives uh, here in D.C., I went to that last year. It was really emotional. I've been to a lot of protests because, well, I lived through the Bush years and <laughs> I'm living through the Trump years. So right, I've, right. I've been to a protester, too. <laughs> <laughs> but this was by far the most incredible one that I'd ever been to because, you know, y- you have pe- speakers who go to these rallies and they get up and they spend the first 10 minutes thanking a bunch of people you've never heard of before and, you know, shilling for their various organizations. These kids just got up and they were raw, incredibly raw and so powerful and so inspirational. And, you know, the the activism that they've done in the last year to really motivate people has had real effects. And we've seen that in, you know, Lucy McBath, for example, whose son died, uh, it, it, you know, to gun violence and also racism. Um, you know, she's in, in Congress now. She won a seat in Georgia that Newt Gingrich used to hold. Um, the the woman she unseated, Karen Handel, was a big shill for the NRA. Now Lucy McBath is there in the House to actually do something about it. 
And just last night, in fact, the um, the House Judiciary Committee finally passed a measure that would require background checks for all gun sales and most gun transfers within the United States. This is something that Democrats have been trying to get done for years. The majority of the country supports it. The majority of Republicans support it. The majority of gun owners support it. Even the majority of NRA members support it. And the only reason we don't have it is because Republicans in Congress on the NRA you know, payroll have refused to pass this legislation. So now the House Judiciary Committee has passed it. It's going to pass in the House. We'll see what Mitch McConnell does with it in the Senate, of course. But, you know, oh, I think we know what we're, we're, we're seeing some it. some progress and some conversations and, you know, uh, people, politicians being unafraid to actually take on the NRA and take on these issues and try to do something about it. So I think that, you know, on, on an anniversary that is certainly um, really, really sad, we can take some real uh, inspiration in the things that we've seen in the last year that show that maybe there's actually some progress and some change in this conversation the country needs to have. Um, of course, Donald Trump, comforter in chief, had some really touching you know, words to say about this yesterday. Tomorrow is also the one-year anniversary of the horrific Parkland shooting. We cannot imagine the sorrow and suffering the Parkland families have endured. Does he sound just so moved? I mean, the guy just could not care less if you were paying him. And, you know, he's for sale that way. And he still couldn't care less. It's it's amazing that um, when Donald Trump is called upon to show some ounce of humanity, that's when he really fails. Like, we know he doesn't read his briefings. We did, we know that, you know, facts and figures and numbers mean nothing to him. But like when he's asked to just sound like a human being, like like a man who has five children who he would not want to, you know, be shot to death in a school, for example. Like he can't do it. He can't muster that that humanity that shows that he has compassion and emotion about anything. Um that's that's not entirely true. There is something that he has a lot of compassion and emotion about, and that's that's his wall. Oh God! Um, you know what? I mean, I, 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 like he absolutely cares more about this wall than the murdered children in Park. Oh no doubt. Just be, that wasn't a joke. I, I mean, he he was willing to do absolutely nothing for the families and communities, you know, in Parkland. But he shut down the entire government to try to get his wall. Of course, Nancy Pelosi told him, no, you bad boy, you're not getting a wall. Open the government. And then, you know, he had to. But uh, he, he loves his wall. He's very excited about the wall. And although, you know, the the government has to figure out a funding deal before midnight tomorrow or we have shut down all over again, third shutdown of Trump's presidency, um, you know, there's a deal. Democrats and Republicans agree. Here's a deal. Uh, let's keep the government open. Let's not spend six billion dollars on Trump's wall. They they agree on that. Trump is supposed to agree to this, but you never know with Trump uh, because he I, really wants that wall. He he needs to have that wall. It, and- it was really amazing <laughs> yesterday because CNN was was they were the first people to say like CNN has confirmed from two different sources within the White House that Donald Trump intends to sign it. And it's like you know what that means. Nothing. Not one thing. Doesn't I mean, mean anything. It's deja vu 
all over again. We just went through this in December. <laughs> Democrats had a deal with Republicans. They all agreed, here's what we're going to do to fund the government. Uh, they had a, vo- a vote in the Senate unanimously passed there. And yet Trump was like, I'm sorry, I just talked to my spiritual advisor, Sean Hannity, and he told me, shut this mother down. So shut down. So that could happen again today, tomorrow. Um, But the deal that that has been worked out, it includes one point three seven five billion dollars for a border Barrier. I don't know if that's an artistically designed steel slat <laughs> fence wire thing. Uh, it needs to have paint. Apparently, Trump also said this week that the reason his wall is so unpopular is because the steel needs to be painted. Yeah, that, Maybe that's the problem. If, if it were pink, everybody would be down. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. Um, so, so that amount of money that they're they're talking about. Uh, falls well short of the $5.7 billion that Trump originally demanded. But here's here's my favorite part of it. It also falls short of the $1.6 billion that was included in a Senate package last year. So the world's greatest negotiator, Donald Trump. President deals. Who, who has been offered money for his stupid wall and has turned it down is going to end up getting way less money than he could have if he would have just taken the deals that were offered to him before. And now that Democrats are in charge of the House, he's not going to get a better deal than when, you know, Paul Ryan was running things. I mean, the guy is just he's such an idiot. So so but he's talking about this wall like, I mean, it's practically built already. Right. And they've got the signs at the rallies. Finish the wall. Like, Well, that I think is one of the more fascinating things about this last week in particular because now they're saying the wall is already being built i mean the wall is already being built we need to finish the wall i mean he even said yesterday you know we're building the wall as we speak we will we will get the job done the wall is very very uh on its way it's happening as we speak we're building as we speak it, it, it's extremely on its way. It's very, very, very on its way. <laughs> it's, and, you know, the the wall, which, you know, we need to paint it. It will be artistically designed. Um, it also will be apparently taller than Mount Everest. It's a big wall. It's a strong wall. It's a wall that people aren't going through very easy. They're going to have to be in extremely good shape to get over this one. They would be able to climb Mount Everest a lot easier, I think. <laughs> I, I, I mean, what? What? Look, I, he clearly is not well, right? No. I mean, he clearly is not well. He's not well and he's not smart. No, no. But, the, you know, this wall thing is... Um, it's so fascinating to me, like how they, everybody, uh, I should say everybody, but the Republican Party uh, is willing to go along with him on this insane ride. Because as you point out, you know, he got some money for the wall before and he said no. He's not going to get more money for it. And the Republicans are happy to sort of enable that for, for Trump. Uh, he said, you know, the wall is being built and now Republicans have to sort of scramble and backpedal to figure out some new language to support this idea that the wall is somehow magically already being built, which it is not. Right. And, and, and if the wall is being built, then why do we need to allocate more money 
to building it if it's practically done already. This is the thing that I go through all the time with with Trump and the way that he talks is like, why would he say that? Is it because he saw the prototypes being built and he thinks that that's the wall? Is it because, uh, you know, there is some fence that he thinks is the wall? But then, you know, this is always the the Occam's razor argument, right? Right. With with Trump. He's just like, he's addicted to lying. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's really what it is. He's in this place now where he needs to find a way to declare victory. We know that he is not actually going to get five billion or twenty five billion or a hundred billion or eleven trillion dollars out of Nancy Pelosi to build the giant monument to Trump. That is not going to happen. And yet that's what Trump promised. That was his number one campaign promise in 2016. I am going to build a wall. It's going to be beautiful, awesome. The Mount Everest thing we didn't know about, but, but, and Mexico is going to pay for it. So his number one campaign promise, he has failed to deliver on in any way at all. He's gotten nowhere with it, but he's got to find a way to like save face. He can't admit, he can't bring himself to admit, you know what? Now that I'm president and I've talked to some experts and they've explained to me that the way that we actually have national security for this country is not by building a ginormous wall. So he, he's got to find a way to to say that I've done this thing I said I was going to do that he can't do. And so now the new strategy is to just say, the wall is practically built already. We just got to wrap it up, you know, a little, a, an extra coat of paint for $5 billion. And, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Republicans have to find a way to be able to say, that he is fulfilling his promise and that's why he should be reelected in 2020 right because you know the the whole slogan is you know promises kept or some nonsense like that wait i thought the new slogan was stronger together didn't they, they did right. completely steal that from hillary clinton yeah well, right that that came out on monday at his rally in el paso yeah. god <laughs> uh, so you know they've got to be able to say that trump has managed to accomplish the things that he said that he would They've got to find a way to also say that it is not costing taxpayers because that was the deal. Mexico was going to pay and Republicans don't like spending money on stuff. So saying we spent all this money to build Trump a wall, that doesn't work for them. So, like, there's no winning for Trump or the Republican Party here except to just pretend. So if Trump just pretends there's a wall, that doesn't cost anybody anything. And... And his supporters will go along with it. They'll buy it. They don't care. Absolutely. And the promise that, you know, our crime rates will go down and our country will be safe once we have a wall. Well, our crime rates are already down. And so we don't actually need a wall to ensure national security in any way. So Trump can also claim, look at the low crime rates, thanks to my non-existent wall, because the crime rates are low already. (laughs) So, I mean, it's it's almost genius. Almost. Almost. Except, like, how stupid are we supposed to be to believe this nonsense? A month ago, we needed to spend money to build a wall, and we had to shut down the government to do it. A month later, the wall is being built, and now the signs at his rally say, finish the wall. The wall we didn't have a month ago, the the wall that without which we would all be dying. It's so crazy, but <sighs> that's what you get in the Trump era. You know... This this plan and there are sort of the, the details of the plan that had been worked out between the Republicans and the Democrats on figuring out how to keep the government from shutting down 
are a little bit murky, right? We don't know all of the details, right. but but this, as far as I'm concerned, they've already given Trump too much for his stupid wall, yeah. right? Like if this is where they they compromised, I think it's I think they're giving him too much. But okay, whatever. Compromise is nobody's happy with the deal, right? If right. That's the definition. But <sighs> there are people that have said this is this is not a terrible way to sort of avert another shutdown you find certain areas where some of the wall will get built where there 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 are some areas of the border that are considered to be porous um more porous than others i should say and if you could strategically build along these areas then donald trump could say like look we did a smart thing here by using very rare right. of course right uh, we did a smart thing here by instead of spending you know, $6 billion on this wall, we are spending much less and we're using it strategically. I believe Barack Obama was the one that sort of used the term using a scalpel instead of using a hatchet. Right. So you sort of get in there with some precision and you make Democrats happy-ish uh, and you make Republicans happy-ish and that's how things get done. And like, okay. And the government doesn't have to shut down. Yeah, and the government doesn't shut down. And I'm not thrilled with that idea. I don't. I'm not thrilled with the idea of him getting even a dollar for a stupid wall. But if that keeps the government from shutting down, okay, fine. I'm. I. I I'm. I'm willing to go there. Right. Okay. And this is where we are now. Yeah. In, in this country, where we have, uh, you know, Republicans controlling the Senate. So. You know, we have to get things through the Senate. And Mitch McConnell, you know, is a real jerk <laughs> and he's happy to uh, accommodate Trump on whatever he wants. So, you know, how do we how do we keep the government functioning when we have a toddler in the White House who will throw the most amazing tantrums, tantrums that we have to spend a billion dollars to try to, to, to talk him down from? Um, because, you know, Mitch McConnell will say, look, we're not going to do anything unless it's what Trump wants. That's not what the Constitution says, obviously. And Mitch McConnell has the power and the authority and, frankly, the obligation to say, look, Mr. President, um, you're an idiot and we're not going to do that. And here's what we are going to do. And if you don't like it and you want to veto it, you knock yourself out. We're going to pass it anyway without you. We're going to override your veto. He could do that. He should do that. That would be the responsible thing to do, except Mitch McConnell does not do responsible things, also does not care about the Constitution. So here we are. We might have to pay a billion dollar ransom to stop Trump from having another tantrum and shutting down the government again. You know, the the thing about Mitch McConnell is, you know, he's done a lot of very conniving, evil, uh, bad faith things, right? But he's not a complete and total moron. Oh, no. He's just evil. He's just evil. Yeah, he just be very clear about that. Uh, and I think even Mitch McConnell knows that if there is another shutdown, it's it's pretty clear who gets the blame here, despite the White House trying to just speak into existence that it's the Democrats' fault. Mitch McConnell knows that uh, the Republicans would get the blame for this. Yeah. And in some ways, I don't envy uh, him for having to <laughs> make Donald Trump happy while also, you know, doing his job. Um God, it's just so fascinating because you also have a Republican president who is the most popular and loved Republican president among Republicans that they have ever seen. Well, 
Let's not forget how they felt about George W. Bush after 9-11. It's an important point to make because Trump loves to say he's the most beloved Republican president ever. Fair. Including Abraham Lincoln. Right, right, right. Because, you know, Gallup was doing polls back then. Yeah, right. Um, right. The Canipiac poll really, I think, had Abraham Lincoln just slightly above Trump. Right. (laughs) You know, and so I I like to point out, because I think it's important that even that boast is complete bull. Um, Now... I don't love George Bush either, and I understand how the country can rally around a president after it has, you know, suffered a terrorist attack, and Bush's numbers went down pretty quickly after that. But, but when Trump runs around saying, "I am your favorite president of all time," that, that that's totally fair. Let's fact check that. But one. that is that's, that's completely <laughs> fair. However, Donald Trump is very, very popular within the Republican yes. Party. He is very, very popular within the Republican. This is Party. true. Yeah. So uh, you do have that is sort of a weird place for Mitch McConnell to be. It is. But, you know, the thing is, you can't feel sorry for Mitch McConnell because he did this to himself. Oh, totally. And, you know, in in the summer of 2016, when Mitch McConnell was briefed on, hey, so um, Russia is trying to rig this election and we should probably do something about that. Mitch McConnell said, don't you dare. And if you say anything about it then I'm going to go nuclear on President Obama in all kinds of ways, say that you're playing politics, uh, through a tantrum of his own, launched a bunch of threats. Uh, President Obama was rightfully concerned about the effects that that would have on the election. And everybody wanted to believe, you know what, we're going to beat this idiot Trump and then we won't have to worry about it and then we can deal with Russia responsibly. So McConnell, you know, he had the opportunity to do the right thing for the country, and he decided, screw the country, I'm down with the Russians, let's get Trump in the White House so that I can promote my own personal agenda of stacking the judiciary with a bunch of right-wing crazy people. So, yeah, McConnell's in kind of a tough spot, but, like, screw him? Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> I want to be very, very clear, because I realized that I said that Mitch McConnell is in a tough spot. I have no sympathy for the man at all. At all. Right. Yeah. Um, so so it's interesting because, you know, if they do shut down the government, which it's I mean, take a take a beat to to realize that we are talking about uh, the very real chance that our toddler president will shut down the government again after the longest shutdown in American history that caused all kinds of damage. And a lot of the federal workers who didn't get paid for a month are still trying to recover from that. And he is considering taking their paychecks away from them again, just just a month later. That could happen. And and they're all trying to say, well, if it happens this time and Trump does it this time, uh, it's going to be the Democrats' fault. Sarah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is trying to, like, spin that in a very Huckabee Sanders way. If that's what the Democrats choose to do, then that's going to be on them. The first one uh, he took responsibility for. But if it happens again, that will be because the Democrats completely failed to do their job. No, lady, no, that's not how that that works. Zero sense. That makes no sense whatsoever. Like, Like just because this time around, Trump did not sit there in the Oval Office with the cameras rolling and say directly to camera, blame me for this one. I will take responsibility. I can't wait to shut the government down. I will be proud to do it. It's all on me. Do not blame the Democrats. This one's mine. Just because he hasn't done that this time doesn't mean it won't be his fault. Everybody knows that Trump and the Republicans did it. Everybody blame them. If it happens again, everybody's going to blame them all over again. Sarah Huckabee Sanders can't wish that one away. She's going to try. Well, that's why she hides from the press these days. So she doesn't have to actually, you know explain 
how the hell that makes any sense because it doesn't. So we'll see. We'll see if we have a government tomorrow. Fingers crossed. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Hello, welcome back to The Bill Press Show. I am your guest host today, Kylie Joy Gray. I am the executive editor of ShareBlue Media. You can find us at shareblue.com. And today, my first guest, thrilled to have him, uh, has so many titles, I have to read the list to you. So hold on tight. Founder of Latina Victory, founder of The Dream US, and finance chairman of the DNC, Henry Munez, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Happy to have you here today. Um, I know that you are originally from Texas. We were just chatting about that. And so you probably have no (laughs) thoughts at all about Texas, about certain rallies that happened in Texas. Uh, just this week. So if you don't want to talk about that, please say nothing. (laughs) I want to talk about Texas. (laughs) I want to talk about the real Texas, the place that I'm from and that I see. I'm from San Antonio, which doesn't have a wall, by the way. Go Spurs, go. Go Spurs, go. (laughs) Yes, sir. So there's no wall. How have you you managed to survive? (laughs) Well, we did. I guess I should take that back. There are some walls surrounding the Alamo, but you know how that turned out. (laughs) Yeah, I was, you know, that was so funny a couple of weeks ago when Trump talked about San Antonio and the wall. The only wall, Kai lived in San Antonio for a little, a little while. Uh, The only wall that I know of in San Antonio, the ones around the Alamo. And as you said, very easily, people got over it and slaughtered the people inside. That's right. Yeah. So walls. They should have work. built that wall to be like Mount Everest. That's right. That's well, right. I think the thing is, if you're going to build a house, you hire an architect, you hire an engineer, you hire people who know what they're talking about. And this president doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to Texas or the border or the communities that have evolved over generations. It's a very different place than the place, the picture he paints in people's heads. Right, right. Can I just jump in for a second? Because I know we have Henry in studio. He's not the only thing in studio. It's Valentine's Day. (laughs) Happy Valentine's Day, We have to address. We have to address. Lovely gift that was brought. Um, So far, my appearances here at the Bill Press Show, I got Ben and Jerry's delivered oh, yeah. to me. Yeah, you came in with Ben Cohen for Ben and Jerry's. Yep. Brought in, we had ice cream for um, now I So just just be warned that if you're going to come on the show when I'm here, you better bring me something good. Man, <laughs> man that's excellent. Um, so I, I do want to talk more about Texas, uh, but I know that we've got some Twitter people who have some thoughts that they need to, to share with us. So please, Peter, tell us. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. We're on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Lots of different comments. I, we talked about the uh, sad passing of Mars Rover Opportunity. Uh, the, yesterday, NASA said that it was shutting down. It was dead. Uh, uh, Manrique says, celebrate Opportunity. The mission lasted 55 times longer than its scheduled duration. I didn't realize that it was supposed to be that Oh, that it went that much longer than it was supposed to. That's very cool. Uh, Holly says, unlike Trump's wall, his unhinging is very, very on its way, to use use his words. Uh, AJ says, uh, Republicans don't really care about the wall. They just don't want to lose the rubber stamp on their own pet projects. And we have a poll running right now uh, at BP Show on Twitter, at BP Show. We ask you, will there be another shutdown? Yes? No? Or undecided, I have to say, it's pretty close. 42% of you say yes. 46% of you say no. 12% of you are currently undecided. So go and vote right now at BP Show. So, okay, what do you think, Henry? Are we going to have another shutdown this week? I agree with the newspapers this morning. I think he's inching toward a 
recognition that he was never going to get funding for this wall, <laughs> that nobody, not the American people or the people who have to legislate on behalf of us, believe that it's a good move. And so I, I think he skulks away. <laughs> And, and or we'll, gets El Chapo to pay for it. I <laughs> right. I, I love this new plan that, you know, all right, Mexico's not going to pay for the wall. But if we could just find one Mexican <laughs> to pay for the wall, then that counts as a victory somehow. I don't know. Um, so I wanted to ask you uh, about some work that um, Latino Victory is doing uh, this week in Arizona. Um, I there there's a Senate race there in 2020 that I'm personally pretty excited about because the Republican who is up in 2020, uh, Martha McSally, could not win an election there. Uh, she got appointed by the governor for a vacant seat, but she actually couldn't win on her own. So voters said, hell no, we don't want her. And then the Republican governor said, too bad, you're going to have her anyway. <laughs> so she's already pretty vulnerable. And I know that your organization is um involved in trying to make sure that we have the right person to beat her. So could you tell well, us a Latino, about that? Well, Latino victory is about electing the next generation of Latino leaders. I mean, the percentage of Latinos who are elected to office doesn't in any way come close to the percentage of Latinos who reside in this country. So over the course of the last almost decade now, we have elected the first U.S. senator who is a Latina. This la in the midterm elections, we've elected the first Latinas to the Congress out of the state of Texas, and we've been focused on Arizona, of course, for many years. And so we think we have a pretty good shot at convincing the people of Arizona that we should elect somebody who actually looks like <laughs> they do and shares their values. So we're going to go heavy into Arizona. That's very exciting. Uh, you know, and, and it's definitely a state where you would have thought a while ago, you know, that's a very solidly red state. And how could we possibly turn that state blue? But, you know, we're, we're halfway there. So it's happening. And I, I get excited about it. Um, well, I don't think anybody, you know, any party should take, for example, the Latino community. The great thing about Latino victory is that it says no party should take us for granted. Actually, we need to lead ourselves. And as we've started to lead ourselves and lead ourselves with values, you know who is on your side and who isn't. Mm -hmm. um, so what other uh, activities are you guys working on uh, as we head into 2020? Well, I think we were going to try and recast the way that people view the early primaries in the presidential election cycle. The Latinos live not just in the southwest border. They live all over this country. Mm -hmm. And so the early contests are contests that should take into consideration that there are Latinos living in those states. So I think you're going to see a big presence, debates, for example, that are, that are conversations that include our community. I also think uh, that the time has passed. For anybody to say, oh, well, you know, we'll go spend some money on Spanish language television and Spanish language radio at the last minute and they'll come along. I think we're going to be consistent. We're going to be consistent with uh, displaying who really has our opportunities and our best, um, you know, our best interests at heart. So you're saying that's that's not Donald Trump? <laughs> you know, interesting about that state of uh, that state of the union address. He spent the first, what, 15 minutes or so talking about unity. And then he spent this extraordinary amount of time talking about Mexicans and the border and the very dangerous area of this country that doesn't at all look 
like the place where I live and I come from. You know, if you went to the to McAllen or Brownsville, you know, I'll tell you a story. Years ago, I started working with Ann Richards, who was the last Democrat elected to the governorship of Texas. And she said, we need to stop treating the border as the back door to the United States and treat it as the front door to opportunity. And she invested billions of dollars in infrastructure and economic development. And the if you went down there today from El Paso to Brownsville, you would see a place that in is unified, that is creating jobs, that is got a tier one university for the first time in the history of Texas. It's just very different than the picture that the president of the United States would paint in your head. So it's not swarming with caravans of criminals from everywhere that's not the United States? No, that's just fear mongery. It's filled with young people going to school. It's filled with uh, um, jobs that are being created by people in the medical industry and the biotechnical industry, in, in cyber security. It is vibrant and unified. It is complex. It's very different than the border that I grew up in. Right. But it is not the border he would paint for you. In fact, I had dinner with um, my mayor, Mayor Ron Nuremberg of San Antonio, about a week ago. And we have the fastest growing economy in San Antonio in the entire state of Texas. We're creating jobs that we don't have people to fill. That's the border. <laughs> so that's a that's a very different picture, obviously, than what he's painted. But, you know, he was talking just a few weeks ago and saying, that polling shows that uh, Latinos actually love him and that <laughs> uh, that he um, that, that, that they agree with him, that uh, that even um, immigrants agree with him on his immigration policies and what he wants to do and building the wall. Um, how do I how do I put this? What the hell? Like, <laughs> is there anything to that at all? What is he talking about? Uh, obviously, you cannot talk about Latinos in some like monolithic way. Um, but, you know, when he says like, well, they, they love me and agree with me. I mean, is he just making that up? Is there any support at all in the in the Latino community for any of the policies that he is pushing? Or is he just completely full of it? Well, you you I mean, you're right. The Latino community of the United States is incredibly diverse. It's different from city to city. It, uh, what There are things that unite us and things that differentiate us and differentiate our presence in communities. Do people? This isn't about him. This is not about <laughs> you. This is not about, about you, Donald, <laughs> as much as you would like it to be. This is about the way that you lead our country, right? It's about that. We have a saying, right, in, in Texas. We didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. I was at a dinner last night with Deb Hallen, the new congresswoman from New Mexico, a 12th generation New Mexican. Twelve generations. I mean, that that's is amazing. really the United States yes. of America. That's what this is about, a respect for the land, bringing her expertise to the Congress about uh, climate change, for example. And it's that energy, I think, that recognition of this new energy in the country that is why we have more women in the Congress, the preponderance of which are Democrats as opposed to Republicans. Republican right. leadership. Yeah, Congress is not uh, as straight white male as it used to be, and that's a good thing, and that's completely because of the Democratic Party. Um, so, you know, I know that there was a period of time, and it's hard to remember now, when the Republican Party thought, you know, 
it would make sense to try to reach out to Latino voters because the country is becoming more and more diverse and we're not going to be able to win elections just with white men. And uh, George W. Bush, you know, tried to make some efforts in that direction. Donald Trump has completely blown that up. Um, I remember in 2012, Lindsey Graham saying, you know, our party's in trouble because we're relying on old white men and the country isn't making any more of them. Um, and yet somehow now Lindsey Graham thinks that Donald Trump is, you know, the second coming. What are you looking for in 2020 to um, in, a, in a candidate to feel like, yes, this is somebody who understands how to speak to Latino voters and to win our vote in this country in 2020? So the first thing I'll say is that it's in the best interest of the country to recognize that the demographic shift that is taking place, that is giving birth, if you will, to this very young, very ambitious population, the preponderance, the majority of whom were born in this country, they're not immigrants to this country, is the future of the country. And so it is important for us to understand what is happening, to make sure that they're educated, to make sure that these people have opportunity Right. Because that is they're they're here. We're here already. Uh, I I'm looking for somebody who doesn't look for us every two years or every four years. I'm looking for somebody who understands um, the full breadth of what we mean to this country, our imprint on culture, our imprint on design, our imprint on politics, education, science, mathematics, and who says it's time to invest in you. Because I, I get, I, I, I actually understand why people are concerned. They're being told that there isn't enough opportunity in this country for everybody. Mm -hmm. Everybody feels that. And, and so I think I'm looking for somebody who offers a solution to the idea that there is enough of the American dream, enough pieces of the American dream to go around. And that includes us. Do you think at this point, and it, it's very early, although I know 2020 started, you know, last November. <laughs> um, do you think that there are people out there in the horizon who are, you know, looking seriously at trying to be the next president of the United States who get that? Well, two years ago, people were talking about the aging uh, talent within the Democratic Party. Oh, you know, there isn't a leader there who's under the age of 65. Uh, they're done with and look at the energy look at the energy of those all of the women who were in white suits in the state of the union uh last week so i'm most excited about the fact that there is this great diverse set of people an african-american woman a latino uh women um an african-american male who want to be the pre who want to be the nominee of the democratic party and that they're all speaking to us i think that's very exciting Yes, there's lots of people. <laughs> there's probably more people than you want to hear from. <laughs> right. I mean, you have a shorter list of people who aren't looking to run at this point, right? <laughs> but um, so um, what are some of the other things that you know, obviously when we, I, I think, um, unfortunately, when we talk about Latinos and politics in this country, it gets consumed with talking about immigration and because of Trump right now with a stupid wall, <laughs> like Mexico is the enemy and we have to build this Everest-sized wall between us and Mexico. Um, but 
there there are other things besides just immigration that matter. Um, what are they? Well, but let's talk about that wall again one time. The okay. wall is a <laughs> metaphor for creating a barrier that separates people from opportunity, right? That yes. separates people from um, their dream. And, and that is only powerful because we have failed to deal with comprehensive immigration reform. You know, the, the, he is the only person who has created this wedge, I think, uh, this powerful metaphor to say, let's build a wall instead of coming, to, as he said at the beginning of his speech, the State of the Union last week, to a place of unity and bipartisanship. So I, I want to say that I do think immigration is important. I do think that we should find a solution. I founded an organization called The Dream.us with Don Graham and with Carlos Gutierrez, a bipartisan group that has raised over $100 million to send dreamers to school. That's wonderful. To college. So when you look at that, you realize that our people, right, the American people, are concerned with the same thing. Can we find a job? Can we send our young people to college? If we get sick, will we be taken care of and will we be able to afford it? Those are the things we should be talking about, not a wall. The wall is just a metaphor for keeping people away from that. Right. So... The the deal that's being talked about right now to keep the government open, um, it it's it would give one point three seven five billion dollars for a border barrier. It's a lot less than what Trump has demanded. It's a lot less than what has been offered to him in the past. Um, do you think if that is the price that we pay to avoid another shutdown, um, that it's worth it? Uh, should we draw the hard line and say you, you don't get a single penny for this? Is it? too difficult to know what the hell a border barrier even means because there have been, you know, there's the wall, there's a fence, there's steel slats, there's wire, you know, who, who knows what it even means. Um, is this a deal that's, if this is the deal, is it worth it to prevent another shutdown? Well, nothing is worth another shutdown, period, right? We shouldn't shut down the government over a political wedge issue like this. But I want to go back to that idea if you're going to build a house, you hire an architect. You listen to the people who know what they're doing. Nobody in Texas has ever talked about not needing a secure border. Nobody is turning down new methods of technology to make sure that our border is secure. So, yes, we should invest more money in the border. We should make sure not only that it's safe, but that we have the ability to move goods and services back between the two countries like we have for generations. So, you know, I think that we, um, those of us who have worked along the border, those of us who live in the border, recognize that uh, this is a time when we should absolutely stand behind a secure border, but it's not what he had in his head <laughs> at all, period. So you are saying that Border security actually is an issue that we all care about. On every, on both borders, right? Of course, absolutely. Because this is something that he says, right? That you don't, you don't care about border security unless you're willing to invest in a wall. And you're saying that there are other things that we can do that actually would be good for our security and for our border and for the communities along the border. <coughs> That's about more than building a wall. That's right. It is. And the experts say that. 
the mayors of the towns along the border recognize it. They're just saying that what he, the again, the picture that he paints in his head of where we live is so different from the reality of where we live. Go down there. Go look at the tremendous economic development that is taking place. Look at the communities that are rising. Look at the new medical school in Harlingen. Look at the new universities in Edinburgh and Brownsville. Look at what is taking place. Look at the University of Texas in El Paso. And then come back and say that this is a place that has millions of people rushing, a very dangerous place that is you know, on the verge of destroying our country, and never talking about some of the other issues, like gun control, that actually are endangering the lives of people along the border. So uh, on that issue, um, the the House Judiciary Committee uh, just last night passed um, a, a bill to um, improve background checks basically on all gun sales. And um, now that Democrats control the House, there's actually a chance that this will get through the House. Um, and on today, you know, it's the first anniversary of the shooting in Parkland. And so we're seeing a lot of progress since then in having the conversation about gun control and gun safety and actually doing something about it. Um, and not a single <laughs> word in the State of the Union no, of about course that not. issue. So how would that um, be effective in these border communities? In terms of, you know, what, you said that there are other things that we need to do, like gun control. Um, is that something that would be more helpful than a wall, let's say? Well, I think on an anniversary like today, wall or no wall, um, legislation that improves the background checks of people who seek to carry a gun would be helpful in every community. Can't argue with that. Um, so the, some of the other things that um, that are talked about in you know what a wall would prevent is also the flow of drugs that come into the country. Are, are there things that we can do besides build a wall that you think would help there as well? Um, well, it's a very complex issue, <laughs> right? I mean, I think we need to develop a, a hemispheric approach to um, our recognize that our neighbors to the south, not just Mexico, are also complex. And, and, and it's important for us to have the kind of relationships with them that understands what's happening there and here. The there and the here is really important. Um, most of the, I believe that most of the drugs that enter into this country enter in through ports of entry, right? Right. Through legal ports of entry. So that's where the experts say, Having greater technology that will allow us to address that entry point and be better at, at determining when something, an illegal substance is coming into the country can be very helpful. Again, it comes down to, are you going to listen to the rants and raves of somebody who doesn't even understand, hasn't really been there, but maybe for a few hours of his life? Or are you going to listen to the experts, right, whose job it is or who govern those communities who really understand um, the place where they live and they govern and where the people are. Right. Um, so I think it's pretty clear. Uh, the wall is dumb. It's not what experts want. Uh, shutdown is dumb. It's not what we should do. Um, Donald Trump is dumb. It's also not what we should do. 
Um, thank you so much for coming in, Henry. So you can find Henry in many, many places, including on Twitter at Latino Victory US and Henry R. Munez the third. That's right. One, two, three. Um, so again, thank you for coming in on Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Doing Day. anything special tonight? I'm gonna stay at home and cuddle with my husband. That sounds absolutely perfect. Um, so thank you very much for, for coming in and talking to us about this, Henry. And um, I, I hope that you're right. And I look forward to seeing how the country actually recognizes ways that we can reach out to the communities that are the future of this country instead of the old white men because the country isn't making more of them. <laughs> This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of The Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hello, and welcome back to The Bill Press Show. I am your guest host today, Kylie Joy Gray. I am the executive editor of Share Blue Media. You can find us at shareblue.com. Um, I, my next guest, Rebecca Buckwalter-Posa, thrilled to have her in. She's going to tell us about all the things that she is angry about today in the news. But first... <laughs> This is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. Got a controversial story here. Because the LA Times did a roundup of the best fast food fries that you can get. And they have a a very they very clear. This is a definitive number one answer. So before I Let's get go. to before I get to their answer, I'm going to ask both of you the best fast food french fry that you can buy, Kylie, is? McDonald's. That's a very solid answer. Rebecca? Bojangles. Bojangles! Very, very, very underrated answer, but I am so here for it. Excellent, excellent choice. However, both of you are wrong. The correct answer, according to the LA Times, is Five Guys. Nope. Five Guys. Nope. Here's how they put it, by the way. Here's how they put it. Uh, quote, this is number one with an asterisk, like Wilt Chamberlain's 100 points or Cy Young's 749 complete games. Not only is Five Guys number one, but it is also so far ahead of everyone else, it is almost unfair. That is how the L.A. Times writes about Five Guys fries. Kylie, you were very close. McDonald's is number two. Uh, I mean, as a native Californian, I have to say that the Five Guys thing is just it's just a, a hard no. I don't agree. It is wrong. It is incorrect. If you're going to go that route, it's in and out all the way. 
but um, I'm I'm gonna have to say this is just fake news. All right, so In and Out is on the list, but it's pretty far down there. I have to tell you. And also, there was a bit of controversy online yesterday because there were a lot of even Californians that say, and I've had In and Out, and I think In and Out is, is good, but their fries are not great. Well, fries I said not great. McDonald's is number one. McDonald's is number one <laughs> on the list. In and Out, number nineteen. Number nineteen. Now Cheaters. here's. Here's the here's the thing that really threw me, and I've never had these fries. Number three on the list, Del Taco. Um, I next. Yeah, yeah, no, I yeah, just I'll, I'll just round I got out. Nothing there. I'll just round out the top five. Number four is Steak and Shake, and number five is Arby's. Specifically, of course, the curly fry at Arby's. Can we go back to talking about Trump? Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Well, I'm glad you asked. This is a great segue, actually, because there is a new story, according to the Washington Post. You know, Donald Trump loves to play golf. And by all accounts, he's very good at golf. We'll give him a compliment. I, I heard that he golf. still cheats. I'm but. Sure, well, I'm sure he does. Uh, but he loves golf. He loves to play golf. In fact, he loves it so much that he personally paid to have a golf simulator installed at the White House. Now... I, I used to be a golfer. I don't play as much as I used to, but I've used these golf simulators before. You can just have a room, and you can swing away as hard as you want, and there's a net that catches the ball, right? And it shows you how far and the trajectory that it would have gone had this been on a real golf course. So he spent $50,000 installing it, and it was installed a couple of weeks ago. What was happening a couple of weeks ago? When we were in the middle of a government shutdown. So he liked to brag about the fact that he didn't go out and leave the White House or do anything when he was, uh, when the government shutdown was going on. He wasn't playing golf. But it looks like he was playing it in the White House. Right. Oh, well, I mean, the guy really cares about optics and, of course, wouldn't want people to see him golfing while he is holding workers' paychecks hostage. So this way, nobody has to see it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, nobody saw him golfing during the government shutdown because he was in the White House golfing. It should be pointed out, and they point out in the story, this replaces one that Barack Obama had installed uh, that, according to the Trump administration, was older and less sophisticated. This is the Bill Press Show. Hello and welcome back to the Bill Press Show. I am your guest host today, Kylie Joy Gray. I'm the executive editor of ShareBlue Media. You can find us at shareblue.com on the interwebs. Uh, my guest in with me today is Rebecca Buckwalter-Posa, the judicial affairs editor at Daily Coast, my original blogging home. Rebecca is also my dear friend. I love her. She is wonderful. Um, she has done many fabulous things, including suing Donald Trump and winning. Um, Rebecca, thank you for joining me here. It's really weird to be sitting talking with you with microphones in our faces instead of like a glass of bourbon, but we'll just go with it because it's only eight in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. And because the bourbon is in my car. <laughs> so, okay. Um, Rebecca started texting me very early this morning about all of the things in the news that was making her very... Um, Salty, I believe was the word. <laughs> but before we get to that, I just have to ask, because you are the judicial affairs editor, Paul Manafort. Paul Manafort um, got himself in some extra super double, triple 
trouble yesterday? I, Paul Manafort, well, first I'll, I'll say I, I am now the deputy managing editor of the Daily Coast Education Fund. So I am ensconced at a C3, and I will be keeping all my commentary appropriately issue-based. Um, Paul Manafort, however, is not running for office and never will. Let's talk about the issue of Paul Manafort then. Absolutely. So Paul Manafort, like, first can we begin with... He's 69 years old. He's facing 10 years in D.C. and up to 80 in Virginia so far. Paul Manafort could not have done a better job of making the worst possible choice at every juncture. It's he, It's been perfect, like perfect 10 at screwing this up. He first decided that he was going to get tried in both Virginia and D.C., no doubt increasing the risk of conviction, increasing the possible penalties. He then uh, finds his way to a private jail and has a cushy time, which he then complains about getting himself booted into a much less pleasant jail. And, you know, so there's just been this pattern where he can't help himself. He signed this plea agreement. And at the time I wrote about it because there's a clause that says, by the way, you violate this. You're still on the hook and we're going to come after you twice as hard. And I knew at the time that he probably was going to violate it. And indeed, he has. And it's coming home to roost. So basically, he committed a bunch of crimes. He was charged with a bunch of crimes. He was convicted of a bunch of crimes. He pleaded guilty to a bunch of other crimes. Part of the plea was, do just don't do any more crimes. And then he was like, sorry, I have to do more crime. I, I think maybe it's a compulsion. Um, you know, hopefully there's a good treatment program in the prison. My name is Paul. I am addicted to crime. <laughs> yeah. Or, he can or start just, a crime ring in prison, maybe. Absolutely. Or just lying. Because, I mean, maybe it's just he had to lie. Maybe that's the core issue. Because I can't think of many other reasons you would lie after signing that plea agreement. So he's he's going to go to jail for a very, very, very long time and probably never get out and get to wear his fancy, funny suits again. Um, and and for people who've been under a rock for the last few years, Paul Manafort was the um, campaign chairman for Donald Trump's campaign. So I, this has nothing to do with Donald Trump, right? Like the fact that Paul Manafort is addicted to crime and is going to prison for committing 10 bazillion crimes in no way reflects on Donald Trump at all. Oh, no, I, w- I would say that it's um, a coincidence. <laughs> and, and, and Paul Manafort is just one of many people from the Trump campaign who has been indicted, convicted, pleaded guilty. None of this has to do with Donald Trump, though, right? None. It's just there's this web around him where literally everyone around him is, as you say, doing crime, doing crime with one another. And and he just, you know, poor guy. (laughs) Yeah. Donald Donald Trump is just a victim. Um, So I know that there are other things in the news besides Donald Trump. I It's hard to think of what, though, because he consumes all of our time and energy and waking moments. But um, what are some other things in the news that, uh, let's say, have made you salty this morning? Uh, well, I have a bone to pick with William Barr, who's, uh, of course, Trump's nominee to become attorney, attorney general. Uh, in the news this morning, or in the news recently, is his uh, son-in-law moving from DOJ to the White House Counsel's Office as his father-in-law is up for Attorney General. Does this seem like a pattern to anyone else? Uh, I'm sure it's merit-based. 
Right. The right. way that Donald Trump I mean, wants I all just, of our immigrants to be. He'll be replacing Jared Kushner, of course. <laughs> <laughs> He's not even confirmed yet. That's how egregious um, these the nepotism is. They don't they don't pretend anymore. So with William Barr, like he was an attorney general before and people said, OK, he's not like Jeff Sessions. He's not this, you know, horribly openly racist ideologue, Donald Trump fan. So he will come in and be better for the DOJ than Jeff Sessions was. Um, is is that in any way right or accurate or do we not understand that William Barr is also bad? I mean, we've just reviewed that. An attorney who's supposed to be the attorney for the entire United States and set an ethical uh, lodestar is getting his son-in-law gig in the White House. I mean, we can start there. But no, the fact that he's served before has no bearing on what he's going to do now because he's coming in as Trump's nominee. And uh, and that says a lot about what his agenda will be and what he's willing to do. Uh, and none of it's good. So uh, this is a frustration for me in covering William Barr and the confirmation process with him, because, you know, with Jeff Sessions, like he's the, the evil Keebler elf looking guy and everybody knows who he is and everybody enjoys hating him as well they should. And so I, I felt that when Jeff Sessions was going through his confirmation process and when he was attorney general, like anything that he would do or say got a lot of coverage. And William Barr has just kind of like gone under the radar in a way. He went through his confirmation hearing with not a lot of fanfare. The Senate is going to vote to confirm him this week. He's going to be attorney general. Um, but as you said, since he's been picked by Trump, that's kind of like a big red flag that he's not a good guy. What are some things that we should be looking for with William Barr as attorney general that um, that maybe alarm you about what might happen with him? I mean, wow, there's so much. Um, the complete erosion of the Civil Rights Division, which is responsible at the Department of Justice for enforcing the laws that are supposed to uh, ensure that our rights are respected. Um, wow, I mean, empowering law enforcement to, or rather encouraging law enforcement to essentially be more brutal. Um, you know, severing all of these programs that have been going on for so long that blossomed under Obama that that are about connecting with communities, that are about uh, access to justice. I mean, the number of Americans who don't have access to any kind of legal help and have a serious legal need is astronomical. Uh, and, and DOJ was starting to address that. They created an office. What was, you know, DOJ under Trump is eliminated these programs, eliminated that office. So I'm a little scared, actually, to see what Barr gets up to with all of this initial work done. Um, but it's it's going to result in long term harm. So Barr is going to be replacing this jokester Whitaker, who's the acting attorney general right now. And um, I mean, you know, it's a Sophie's choice, right? Which one is better? And they're all terrible. Um, but Whitaker was uh, testifying before Congress last week in in a really bizarre hearing where he was really obnoxious and snotty and arrogant and kind of dumb. And... You know, I said I said before, <laughs> I, I think that everybody is innocent until proven guilty. No one should be considered guilty based on their looks alone, <laughs> except for maybe Matt Whitaker. <laughs> I, I mean, sorry. I mean, the guy looks like a supervillain. He, he does look like a supervillain. Um, so and there's a there's a potentially a problem with his testimony from from last week. We're reviewing the testimony. I'm not so sure he was truthful on everything he said. 
So that was Representative Jerry Nadler, um, who was <laughs> the one leading the hearing that Whitaker was testifying at last week. And, you know, like Whitaker was asked a question and he was like, I think your time is up uh, and didn't want to answer the question. And now they're saying, well, we, we don't think that he was honest during that testimony last week. Is that bad? Um, yeah. So you're you're a lawyer. Um, so maybe you can explain right. to us. But uh, Virginia Barr, this is not legal advice. Okay, proceed, okay. Kylie. So <laughs> if you are the acting attorney general, play acting attorney general, and you are testifying before Congress in a hearing and you say things that are not true, is that bad? You know, but but Jeff Sessions did it first. <laughs> um, and by the way, since we're talking about Sessions and it's Valentine's Day, the best thing about Jeff Sessions is my future wife, Kate McKinnon's impression of him. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, obviously there is, I don't even know how we come back from this as a country. The number of flagrant lies told under oath to federal officers, to members of Congress, to committees, it's appalling. It's, I mean, really, really shocking. Yeah, so it's bad. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> So, I mean, I guess it'll be good that Whitaker will be replaced by new guy and then new guy can be the one to lie to Congress. But at least it keeps it interesting. I you know, it's it's new guy, same lie. So, right. He's emphasizing uh, he'll do whatever he can consistent with the law with regard to whatever Mueller produces. Well, we already know how Trump and his cronies uh, interpret the law. Um, okay, so what's something else you're feeling salty about today? Ryan Adams. <laughs> but let's turn this around and make it about feeling great about Mandy Moore and other women who are coming out to address very publicly um, instances of, of, you know, domestic abuse that are emotional, that are psychological and, uh, and toxic masculinity, to use a buzzword. Uh, so the New York Times did this incredible piece on the musician Ryan Adams, who has a pattern over his very long career of enticing young women to come work with him with the promise of success and then becoming controlling and abusive in various ways. Um, so I just it's it's hard to keep learning about these things. But every time uh, a woman speaks up or a group of people speaks up, I just want to say Thank you. And uh, how positive it is that we're having these conversations still. But I'm really salty about Ryan Adams continued existence. I'm so glad you brought that story up because I, I was going to do this in the, the full court press, but I don't think we could have given it the proper time. Uh, if anybody hasn't read the New York Times story, you should really go read it uh, because it really lays out. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the Me Too movement and sexual abuse and sexual assault. And, um, you know, this is not the type of story that we're used to hearing in that uh, movement. Um, how he used his power and influence, which he's very powerful and very influential in the music industry. And, and I should point out, before this story came out, I'm like a huge Ryan Adams fan. Like this absolutely is terrible. Um, and he used this not only against female performers, but underage female performers. And he knew they were underage. And he's trying to now hide behind the fact that he never knew that one of these women. Um, so one of the things about Ryan Adams is, you know, he's always been very accessible online. Like he used to 
message with fans on MySpace. And then, of course, after MySpace went away, like he still does it with Twitter and stuff like that. So there was a female bass player who had reached out to him and she was 14. She was 14. And they never had any uh, physical contact, I should point out. But he, not that that matters. That's right. like the the way he went about it is disgusting and sick. And it's just, I mean, you've got woman after woman after woman in this story just laying out what an absolute monster uh, he was. So it's weird how we keep hearing this story of a more powerful older man who uses his power and fame to um, coerce other less powerful, potentially younger or even underage women into pleasing him in various ways. It's Stop like, me if you've heard this one before. I mean, like there's a comedian out there and movie producers and a, a president. Um, wh- why does this keep happening? I mean, I, I think we know why it keeps happening, um, you know, because it's enabled by every structure that's currently in place. It's enabled by every time that power disparity makes it difficult to publicize one thing about this article, this instance, I mean, yes, the 14-year-old named Ava that was chilling, um, is that a lot of these women gave up music altogether. And Mandy Moore is an example that I think may be able to bring this home. If this can happen to superstar Mandy Moore, if an abusive guy can grind down this incredibly successful singer to where she didn't produce another album after 2010, um, and he used the same tactics on her that he used on the 14-year-old. Oh, I'm going to you know, cover your song or I'm going to record a song with you. And never did. They were married for six years. So if this, if this big a career shift, if this major life change can be affected on Mandy Moore as a result of domestic abuse and, and psychological violence, essentially, I mean, just imagine being the 14-year-old who's absolutely no one in celebrity terms and wants nothing more than to have a career in music. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I think he's a bad dude. Um, that's all I got. So, uh, I mean, uh, it, it's a terrible story. I think that the, I guess, the silver lining to me about it coming out now is that um, after watching Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation process and seeing the way that Uh, Republicans in the country from the president on down rallied around him and basically said sexual assault doesn't matter, Um, that that even if you do try to rape somebody, so what? And now we have this attempted rapist on the Supreme Court for the rest of our lives. Um, And the women who did come forward about him were um, threatened, endangered, harassed, treated so badly that it felt, especially after Kavanaugh was confirmed, like, wow, what? is the point in ever coming forward about a powerful man ever again when your life is going to be ruined and he is going to be richly rewarded. Um, and so I, I guess uh, I take some heart in in knowing that that didn't discourage women from still telling their stories. And, and I hope that, you know, even though the um, initial wave of the the Me Too hashtag activism that was happening where it felt like every other day you were waking up to another story of, oh, that dude too, and that other dude, and this dude over here, um, that that kind of faded away a bit. But like, there are still other dudes, and there are still other stories, and they still need to 
be revealed and exposed for what they are. And the only way that we're ever going to change that is to keep telling the stories and keep revealing how widespread it is. So I guess I hate that there are other stories, but I know that they're out there. And so I'm glad that they're still being told. But but what do we do and how do we fix it? And is there any way for us to make progress when we do have a party in power that says, so what? We have a, a president in the White House who admitted on tape and we all heard it. Yeah, I totally sexually assault women and it's awesome. He put an attempted rapist on the Supreme Court. Like, is there any way for us as a country to do better, at least as long as those things are true and those people are in power? I really believe in the power of storytelling. I think that it is going to be a matter of telling stories over and over. And of course, um, you know, from my perspective, legal changes and enforcement of gender disparity um, laws that are meant to prevent uh, sexism. These things will eventually have effect. I think one of the things that concerns me is how how long will it be before we get to the stories that are just sort of the everyday pernicious, constant, but really small scale manifestations of this, the teachers and coaches and just, you know, men in the lives of girls and women who are exerting the same type of influence, maybe to a lesser degree, maybe with a different result. But I mean, that plants the seed already. Um, and, And men grow into doing worse things when that's an acceptable baseline. So, um, I I do also take some heart in seeing more women in elected office uh, because I really hope that there is a day when we have a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing and like the only people asking questions are women. Um, You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was asked, you know, how many women on the Supreme Court would be enough? And she said nine. (laughs) Um, So, I I, I mean, that's encouraging. And and I know that, you know, after um, after Anita Hill was Uh, trashed and dragged through the mud and they put Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court anyway and it encouraged women to run for office and have more women in there and now we have more women in there again and that's wonderful. Um, Are there things that that Congress can do? Are there legislative solutions in any way to address this? Is it just like a cultural thing and, and it's the storytelling that will eventually change our, I mean, like, is there a law that we can pass? Is there any, you know, can we have a vote on something? I mean, you know, the ERA, um, it, I think that there are a lot of different ways. I mean, one thing that is extremely pertinent to uh, equality is just reproductive justice. Women's ability to control their own bodies uh, is at the core of a lot of the patterns in society and, uh, frankly, political discussions that demean women and disadvantage them. So they could maybe stop taking money away from Planned Parenthood. They could maybe um, ensure that there is a paternity stipend, maybe they could give child care more priority. The things that are affecting women disproportionately and, and putting them at a disadvantage in, in power dynamics that are um, male-female. So there, there are things that we could do. Yes. <laughs> well, that's encouraging. And I, you know, I did love to see at the State of the Union uh, all of the women in white, that was lovely, yeah. and many of them wearing ERA buttons. Um, you know, I... I have cared about it since I was like too young to even know why I should care. Um, and so I I hope that one day that actually does happen. <laughs> well, I mean, visibility is its own significant way 
to change things. So I guess this is where I would go back to Christine Blasey Ford. What she did, the outcome was absolutely tragic, but her visibility, her willingness to testify was a really significant moment, I think, in our history. Um, and, and this is also a Ruth Bader Ginsburg thing or RBG thing is she and Justice Sandra Day O'Connor emphasized how important it was to have women in positions of power to normalize it. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful about that. That's something we can do in the meantime and are doing clearly. Okay. So anything else salty or is that all of your salt for today? Um, can I put a sweet spin on something that might make me a little salty? It's Valentine's Day. Sure, of course you can. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, so like, Valentine's Day is just, I mean, horrific. I, I don't have anything. But, but I will say there is one great thing that you could do on Valentine's Day. Um, and that's, I just, you know, I could complain about everything as a boy and a girl and a man and a woman. But I'll just say, hey, allies, if you're looking for something productive to do, make sure that you say and boys can like boys and girls can marry girls put in something um, to encourage your kid along the path of seeing uh, LGBT people as equal as being uh, deserving equal representation and you know that matters not just for the kids who may come out years from now but the kids that you want to be strong allies from the start and the kids who could otherwise be bullies just planting that seed um, and sending your kid to school with that belief that they might repeat is so significant, especially when in the last two months there's been a violent attack on a on a woman in a subway in New York just because someone thought she was gay. A male couple was attacked outside of a bar by a whole group and beaten badly. And an actor in Chicago, Jesse Smollett, had bleach poured on him, all simply for being gay. So Valentine's Day does not have to actually be the most heteronormative um, day of the year, is what you're saying? I mean, I'm just saying that if we have to have Valentine's, let's at least, you know, do a little activism and try to use it for, for good. Well, I, I like that. I, I, I think that that's actually a good approach. My issue with Valentine's Day, I, I think it's a holiday that is designed to make everybody feel bad <laughs> if you're if you're single then you're supposed to feel bad that you're single. If you're in a relationship, there's this enormous amount of pressure that you have to wear the right lingerie and be sexy enough <laughs> or get the right gift or be romantic enough or make sure that the, you know, overpriced restaurant dinner is is the right dinner and you there's the pressure and the disappointment and so like nobody wins on Valentine's Day except for me because I got coffee, I got chocolates, I got a, I got a stuffed animal. So I guess I'm winning on Valentine's Day. But um, yeah, it's, it's a holiday that I think is just about making people feel bad. So I like the idea of using it in a way to like actively try to make people feel good. Right. That, right. that seems like an interesting different kind I of mean, spin for the holiday. I feel like it's sort of an earned media situation, you know, um, <laughs> where we just say, OK, there's this hook. What, you know, if we're going to have this made up politics, I, I don't concede that it's a real holiday. Um, then, you know, what what are we doing while well, we're setting norms about relationships and gender and people and and really think about that? Like I could be saltier about the fact that I don't see myself in many ads and all the Valentine's advertising just kind of misses me. Uh, frankly, I'm actually just glad to be off the hook. Um, <laughs> though I do There's have that a, pressure thing. <laughs> I do have a Valentine this year for pretty much the first time. 
Um, and, and I like that part, but I think that keeping our minds on that, and I know that's hard for parents given that making 20 Valentine's cards for your four-year-old is a tedious and ridiculous task, but thinking about what it actually does and the norms it sets, um, just to be really heavy and obnoxious, um, is, is a really, that's the one good thing I can see coming out of Valentine's Day. I like that. I appreciate that. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me on the radio for everybody to hear us have the kind of conversation we always have. You can find (laughs) Rebecca on Twitter, no longer blocked by Donald Trump, at RPBP um, and at Daily Coast and also at your local bar sitting with me drinking bourbon, (laughs) usually not at 830 in the morning. Um, Thank you for coming and telling us all the things you're salty about and how we can make Valentine's Day a holiday that is not just about making people feel bad. Thanks so much for having me. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Hello, welcome to the Bill Press Show. I am your guest host today, Kylie Joy Gray. I'm the executive editor of ShareBlue Media. You can find us at shareblue.com. And because it's Valentine's Day, I'm having all of my favorite women come join me, apparently. Um, So another favorite woman of mine is Erica Sacken. She's the senior director of communications for Planned Parenthood now. Um, She was my boss in 2016 when we um, worked very hard to try to protect the country from Donald Trump. It's not our fault. We we tried. We did our part. I can attest we did everything we could. Um, so thank you for coming to talk to me, Erica. Um, so here's my question. It's November 2016, and the night that started out great was no longer great. And we're all there sitting in the office of Planned Parenthood realizing that our worst nightmare is actually happening and Donald Trump is going to be president and Mike Pence is going to be there with him. And we all were panicking that um, there's not going to be a Planned Parenthood anymore because they're coming for us now. Um, But here we are, and it's 2019, and Planned Parenthood is still here. So how did that happen? (laughs) Well, thanks, Kylie. That's a great question. (laughs) Um, And I remember that night all too well, (laughs) unfortunately. so I, I think one thing that's important to remember is that the Trump administration is not over yet. Um, and the fact that uh, they have not succeeded is not for lack of trying. Um, we did see kind of one of the first things that Trump talked about doing was defunding Planned Parenthood, which, by the way, uh, there is no budget item for Planned Parenthood. Uh, it's not like we're, you know, appropriated to. Uh, we just get reimbursements from Medicaid um, for providing health care. So that term is always a bit of a misnomer. But basically wanted to end patients being able to come to Planned Parenthood. And what you saw is that, lo and behold, that's incredibly unpopular (laughs) across the rest of the country. Um, And so, you know, we saw tons of patients calling their representatives. Uh, We saw people going into their offices and confronting them with their health care stories Uh, We saw people flooding the halls of Congress, uh, and that really put a lot of pressure on Congress to make sure that they knew that if they did pass this bill, people would be incredibly unhappy, and mainly because, you know, Planned Parenthood is health care, and where most of us have been for birth control, for cancer screenings, for a whole range of services. Um, That is to say, uh, while it didn't pass in Congress because the people can have influence and get their senators to listen to them, Uh, it doesn't mean that the administration can't take action and still do things that are pretty terrible. 
Um, so right now we're actually holding our breath, waiting for the domestic gag rule to come down. Uh, I don't know if your listeners know much about it. What's the domestic gag rule? Okay. <laughs> it is it is basically a law that says that if you are a provider that serves people who are low income um, or providers across the country, really, it would be illegal for you to tell your patients how and where they can access abortion, uh, even if their health depended on it, even if it's something they wanted to do. You would be gagged from giving them that information. It also, from what we've seen, includes rules meant to prevent patients from being able to come to Planned Parenthood, which... By the way, Planned Parenthood serves about 41% of the patients that would be impacted by this rule. So all of those people, millions, uh, would be left with nowhere else to go for basic health care. Um, and it essentially would dismantle Title X, which is our country's program for affordable birth control and reproductive health care. So if you've ever been to a health center and gotten care free of charge, especially pre-ACA, um, but now too, <laughs> um, me too, um, it, it That was probably because of Title X. You were probably getting care on a sliding scale or for no cost to you because of this great program, Title X. It serves 4 million people a year. It makes sure that even if you don't have any money, if you don't have any health insurance, you can still get birth control. You can still get well woman exams. You can still get STD testing. Um, and so this rule would really basically eliminate that program and leave a lot of people across the country with nowhere to go for birth control. So this is something that they're working to do right now. And it's I mean, it's not something that I had heard about. And I pay attention to these sorts of things. So, like, are they just trying to, like, do stuff behind the scenes because they can't get get this legislation through Congress and they're trying to do it by, like executive order? Um, are there other things that we should know about that they're trying to do while nobody's looking Yes and yes. <laughs> um, so, yes, absolutely. It is clear. Look. As we've talked about, Planned Parenthood is incredibly popular. Birth control is, in fact, even more popular, um, as is getting health care overall. Uh, and so they are absolutely trying to go behind the scenes and using regulations, using rules, using uh, small shifts in the way that grants are given in order to really roll, roll back this access. I mean, before we saw the domestic gag rule even proposed, uh, we saw them trying to change the kinds of birth control that the federal government was saying are okay to give. So switching from, let's say, having birth control being able to be medically approved um, to pushing um, and actually favoring health centers or other providers, which can sometimes be uh, these crisis pregnancy centers that are actually just anti-abortion counseling centers posing as health providers. Um, but pushing women towards using things like the rhythm method or uh, <laughs> other, other old wives tales. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Which, you know, look, some people it works for. It's great. But if you are busy and have a demanding job, if you are in a relationship where you can't really negotiate when to and when not to have sex, if you are not good at keeping track of what day it is or when your period is coming, a lot of times this method isn't really that effective. So and I have a question about that, because the the reason that my doctor originally put me on birth control had nothing to do with preventing pregnancy and had to do with my extremely unpleasant and painful periods. Does the rhythm method address the medical things that contraception is used to treat? No, it does not. Thank you, Dr. Sack. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
It does not exactly, and so I think this this kind of these kinds of moves are really ignoring the full range of reasons that women use birth control, which is medicine, which is healthcare, which should not be beholden to ideologies, especially ideologies that the vast majority of the country are not really on board with. Um, and you know, it also is really limiting access to healthcare overall. I mean, the the unfortunate thing is that the people who are being hit the most on these pieces specifically are people who already don't have that much. People with low incomes, students, young people, people of color who already face barriers to healthcare, um, immigrant populations. A lot of these are the people who are now also seeing the healthcare that they depend on really put at risk and in some cases disappear completely. So... We we elected a Democratic Congress, like huge tsunami election, and we have more women than ever before. And they're pretty much all Democrats. Um, and so the idea like we know that the House is not going to pass some bill to uh, you know make Planned Parenthood illegal or make birth control. Illegal. Like we know we're safe in the House, but but we're not completely safe is what you're saying, because there are other things that they can do. So like what is a person like me? who believes in the cause of Planned Parenthood, whether I'm getting a paycheck from Planned Parenthood or not, um, and and believes that it is a good resource for people who need (laughs) access to health care, especially if they can't afford it otherwise. Like, what do I do? Yeah, that is a great, great, great question. Um, The good news is that there is a lot to do still. Uh, You know, Congress may, uh, we may definitely have the House and the Senate is mixed on health care. But, you know, they still listen to you and there are still a lot of things that they can do um, in order to hold the president accountable and in order to stop some of these bad policies from passing. Or if we do see them go into effect, and I will say the gag rule right now is waiting at OMB, so we could really see it any day. Um, so pay attention. I will promise to make sure everyone knows when it does happen. Um, but uh, Congress can still act. Um, and I think the most important thing to do is make sure they know how upset you are at these policies in order to make sure they prevent them from going into effect to look at all their options. Uh, the other thing that you can do is uh, actually reaching out to the administration can make a difference. For example, when the gag rule was first introduced, Um, They have a comment period because they are still going through the normal procedure for at least some policies that they're putting out there. Um, And they are legally bound to read all of those comments and take them into consideration. And we know that this was a priority of the administration. Um, At least it has been for the past two years. Um, (laughs) How long have they been in power? (laughs) Always feels like longer. Um, And I think one of the reasons we haven't actually seen it become final yet is because so many people across the country submitted their comments, said, hey, this would really harm me. This would harm my ability to get health care. We saw medical associations submitting comments. Um, So those make a difference. And those are probably in large part part of the reason why we haven't seen this go into effect so far. Um, And then, of course, volunteer with your local Planned Parenthood. Um, We are doing everything we can to uh, put a stop to this. Uh, And, you know, we won't know all of our options until we see the final rule. But I think we've made pretty clear that we're going to do everything we can to make sure it doesn't go into effect. So so there are things that can be done. Yes. And um, obviously the the power of the people, even with the Republican control of Congress, has been really impressive in protecting our health care. 
protecting Planned Parenthood and healthcare in general. Um, it is, you know, one of the things that I get a lot of hope from when I think about how they were coming for Obamacare. And I, I was pretty sure, yes. like, that was the end. <laughs> and they were coming for Planned Parenthood. And I know because I had to write the opposition book on Mike Pence <laughs> and his lifelong dream of killing Planned Parenthood. I still can't believe that that is something I refer to now. Um, so, but, like, they haven't done it. They have right. failed. And right. so that, like, really shows that healthcare. And the, you know, some of the biggest providers of healthcare are like so popular that they can't they can't kill it. Right. Even though they're trying. Right. So, like, do you feel better now than you did November 2016? Yes, <laughs> um, I do. And I think that, uh, you know. So not to be a downer on Valentine's Day, but um you know, I do in the sense that it's been amazing to see the power of the people, not to be cheesy, but really, um, it has been amazing to see what we can do when we do hold a rally, when we all show up, when we hold our elected officials accountable, when we make clear that something isn't OK. Um, I think we have seen democracy in action and seen it work. Um, and that has been incredible. I also... Um, you know, a lot of the worst policies that we've seen coming out of the Trump administration haven't taken effect yet. Um, and when they do, it will not be great. Um, Trump's birth control rule, for example, they introduced a rule that basically says your boss can decide whether or not your health insurance is allowed to cover birth control. Um, so like the Hobby Lobby case the that Hobby we all Lobby remember. Case, it was the Hobby Lobby case on steroids because it's not just a religious objection. It is literally anything. It can be a moral. It can be an ethical objection. You don't have to explain it. Um, it, it can just be an objection to birth control. Um, and then the, you don't get it. You don't get it covered by your own health insurance that you pay for out of your own pocket. Um, and that has been held up in the courts. But at some point it may not be. And when that takes effect, it will be pretty devastating, especially for women who need birth control um, and who get it through their employer's insurance, which is, you know, most people. Um, you know, the other things that we've seen are, uh, you know, re regulations that have been moving. They've tried to end the teen pregnancy prevention program, um, which is a really effective and evidence-based program across the country that includes education, includes other outreach programs um, that help teens make good decisions about, you know, not getting pregnant, about what they want for their lives. Um, and they are trying to basically eliminate that program. Um, and that will also have an impact. You know, right now we have more than 62 million people who can access birth control without a copay. That has been incredible. We have some of the lowest rates in decades of unintended pregnancy um, and pregnancy amongst teenagers, which just shows that more teens are you know, making their own decisions about they want what they want for their futures. Um, and these policies, unfortunately, may have an impact not just next year, um, but for years and years to come. So I think what I worry about the most is the damage that this administration is doing um, that we haven't seen yet, but that we may have to live with. Because, I mean, they, they don't talk about it a lot. Like when when Donald Trump gives his speeches, like he talks about his wall a lot. Right. And he talks about himself a lot. But like he doesn't mention Planned Parenthood. And so, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's a priority for him. 
Well, I will say he has now started um, literally making things up about abortion, um, actually in a way that is really dangerous. Um, so you're so you're talking <laughs> about um, my God, his rally in El Paso earlier this week. Yep. He he told this incredibly bizarre and gross fanfic fantasy weird thing about abortion. Um, can you explain? what he was talking about and why it was completely insane. Yeah. uh, What he was talking about doesn't exist, uh, first of all. He is basically leaning hard into this idea that now uh, kind of how we saw about this really crazy slander about Hillary Clinton, for example, in 2016, um, or what we hear him say about immigrants now, um, really full on making up this idea that somehow Democrats are out there wanting to harm babies. Um, And it's completely untrue, right? There is no medical procedure that even resembles anything close to what he's talking about. Uh, There is no such thing as abortion until birth, uh, if you will. Uh, That's not a thing. Or after birth. I mean, or after birth. Because he took took this this, uh, controversy that was happening in Virginia from some um, Democratic politicians who maybe were not as articulate as they should have been in talking about later term abortion. And then he did the Donald Trump thing to it, where he like put it in the Donald Trump machine and like times a thousand and made it super duper crazy. So it turned into this story where a perfectly healthy woman has a perfectly healthy baby and they wrap it in a blanket and they give it to the mom and they give it to the dad. And then they just like, execute it that that was his word um that's not a thing that happens no it is not Um, and that's not a bill that any democrat is trying to make happen no and i i think actually the most important thing to remember about all of this is that the bills we're talking about have protections for women to access abortion if roe versus wade is overturned In Virginia, it actually didn't even do that. It just removed restrictions like waiting periods and saying that it only takes one doctor instead of three to sign off on if a woman needs an abortion procedure after a certain amount of time. Um, In New York State, you're talking about really writing into uh, health law because so far, even in a progressive state like New York, abortion has been treated uh, only in the criminal law. And so it's taking that out and saying, you know what, this is healthcare. Let's treat it like that. And let's say in New York State, at least, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, women will still safely and legally be able to access abortion. And the scary thing about what he's doing and how he's describing these bills now is that we need bills like what's passing, what passed in New York and what they were trying to pass in Virginia. Because right now there are 16 cases only one step away from the Supreme Court. In fact, the Supreme Court did a preliminary ruling on one in Louisiana um, just last week that if the law, um, they blocked a law that a lower court said was okay. And if they hadn't, then you would have only one doctor in the whole state who could perform abortions, basically. Um, And that case isn't over. They're probably going to have to hear the full case on the merits of the law in October. And we have Brett Kavanaugh on the court right now. And he, you know, is the one person who wrote a dissent in the court's decision to block that law. And we don't, uh, you know, when he was confirmed, the tip, the court was tipped away from protecting access to safe legal abortion. So it is real. We could really look at the national protections to accessing abortion being chipped away or removed completely. 
Okay, but I'm confused because Susan Collins told us when Brett Kavanaugh was being confirmed and she said even after he was credibly accused by multiple women of sexual assault that he was a good guy and he was not necessarily going to overturn the laws that protect safe legal abortion. So then last week he wrote this dissent saying I would totally overturn the laws that protect safe legal abortion. Well, to be fair, he didn't write that in his dissent. His dissent was more like, we should let this law go into effect and see what happens. Um, But the thing that is worrying about that is that, you know, what he said over and over again in his hearing is precedent upon precedent, right? Which isn't actually a legal term, really, um, but, you know, or or a meaningful term, really. Um, But, you know, he said precedent after precedent, Roe versus Wade is precedent, yada, yada, yada. And three years ago... The court ruled to uphold Roe again and actually said laws like what's happening in Louisiana are definitely not okay. They definitely are too much of an undue burden for women, and they are not what we intended when we made rulings about the right to access abortion. And it was a big victory. We protected access to abortion. Health centers in um, Texas could start reopening and providing health care. Be a nice step. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, And it was a big deal. And this law in Louisiana essentially does the same thing that that Texas law did. And so not only was he not ruling to protect access to abortion or kind of dismissing the idea that you would need to protect women's access to abortion, which, by the way, we saw Kavanaugh do when he was a lower court judge in uh, around immigrant women who had been really trying to access abortion, had wanted to, had jumped all through all the legal hoops in the state of Texas, which there are a lot, um, and... He said, you know what, it's not that I think she shouldn't access abortion. I just think we should delay this, um, possibly indefinitely, uh, which, as you know, abortion is a time-sensitive medical procedure. Um, so, you know, he, he kind of is, is writing these opinions without regard to the healthcare impact of the women who could be affected. Because when we saw this law go into effect in Louisiana, it was devastating. It was people were being turned away. They had to go elsewhere for their appointments if they could go elsewhere at all. Um, and so not only is ruling without regard to women's health and women's well-being, but uh, now we're also seeing that this is, this is actually about a precedent that the court has already set. And this should be an easy case. It should be able to say, you know what, we already ruled on this. And uh, it is not something that should be a law. Um, And the worrying thing is that it is not clear if that is what we are going to see happen. So uh, we have some additional protections in place for our health care and for our access to all the kinds of health care we need, including abortion. Um, by having a Democratic House. But there are a lot of ways that the Trump administration and the people the Trump administration is putting in places of power, like Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, can still undermine that. Um, but the the thing that I guess is the most important is that regardless of who is in power, the um, people of America really, really care about their health care and about Planned Parenthood and can fight really, really hard to protect it. Um, and having some really fierce women in Congress who understand these kinds of things uh, helps as well. So pivot. Let's wrap up our Valentine's Day speaking of fierce women with something totally different, but every woman should enjoy. So Representative Ilan Omar was amazing in a hearing earlier this week. Just just roll it, Peter. Mr. Adams, in 1991, you pleaded guilty to two counts of withholding information from Congress 
regarding your involvement in the Iran Kortra affair, for which you were later pardoned by President George H.W. Bush. I fail to understand uh, why members of this committee or the American people should find any testimony that you give uh, today to be truthful. If I can respond to that. Uh, um, it wasn't a question. I, I, On was February, that was it not, was, that was not a question. That was the, I, I reserve the right I'm, to my time. It is not, it is not right. That was Members not a question. can attack On February a 8th. Who is not permitted to reply. That, that was not a question. Thank you for your participation. Okay, thank you for joining us on Valentine's Day. I am Kylie Joy Gray at ShareBlue Media. You can find us at shareblue.com. You can find me on the Twitters at Kylie Joy. Thank you, Erica, for joining me. You can find Erica on the Twitters at Erica James. Um, it has been a wonderful day of this some of my favorite women is the being on. Awesome. Bill Press Show.